Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our executive pastor, Pastor Brandon McPherson, with this week's sermon. We're going to jump back into our series in Mark. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2. We'll get into that in just a moment. Um, I don't think it would be good of me to not, rec- to not recognize and for us to continue to recognize at times um, the current state of our world and what has gone on and what we see firsthand, what we see through our phones and through our televisions. And certainly, um, you don't have to be a Christian to say that things are in chaos, right? I think the atheist agrees with that. Um, And so, this world is best operated when there's balance. And right now, there is no balance. Um, Whether it is through the political world, through the world of race, culture, um, whatever it might be, there is not balance. And when there isn't balance things become unhealthy, and not just even in the most severe sense, but even in the most practical sense. When we talk about, like, our body, um, you know, you're supposed to eat a balanced diet, and that's what keeps you healthy. Um, Your temperature, if it's four degrees less or four degrees more, you're in trouble, right? I mean, some of us have known this firsthand, that um, it's good to have a balanced, even temperature, that, that everything requires balance in order for it to operate the way that God intended. And the truest way to see the depravity of man's heart is to see things leaning one way or the other to severities. So we have what we now call extremists and things like that of that nature where we are concerned because people are headed one way too far, whether it be one direction or the other, and that causes chaos, and that's what we see. Um, that now we're forced to, in every way, pick sides. It's a tragedy especially in the in culture, where the scripture is clear that there are only but two sides, good and evil, and that is it. And, and we then categorize ourselves into certain groups. And the church even is at fault in this, that there's not balance in the church, that as we see this, uh, the church is at odds with one another, and then we become unhealthy, and the world looks at us, and they laugh, and they laugh because they see us arguing with one another. Uh, and though we call our, consider ourselves brothers and sisters. And so this morning, we're going to discuss another form of, of balance that's required, and that is the, the pendulum between legalism and lawlessness, and how as the life of the believer, that also requires balance, because you can be on one side where you're very legalistic, um, where, you know, you don't go to the movie theaters, you, you know, you, women, you only wear dress, you don't wear makeup. You, and maybe that sounds foreign to you, but I grew up in that culture very much of, you know, uh, you would never go to a movie in the, in the theater. You would never, in these groups, whether you believe it or not, they very much are alive and well of that sort of thinking of being very legalistic. Um, you can't play card games unless it's Rook. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's, that was like God's game, I guess, because there weren't jokers in it. Um, 
And so uh, there are certain rules and regulations that the church has made that has turned into legalism. And that's not a new thing, which we're going to discuss, uh, you know, very much throughout this text. And then the other side is lawlessness, where we, where we fight legalism and we say, well, nothing is, nothing is uh, you know, I'm not bound by the law anymore. Praise God for his son who has made me free. I am free indeed, and therefore I can go and do as I please. And so then we begin to um, uh, make excuses for maybe inappropriate relationships or inappropriate speech and things of that nature because we just put it all on the grace of God and we say it has been covered. And though it has, lawlessness should not or sin should not abound all the more. Paul addressed this sp- specifically by saying, uh, if grace abounds, should we just sin all the more? And he's like, no, like certainly not. We don't sin all the more uh, despite the grace that has been given to us. And so today, this text is going to display this battle between legalism and lawlessness, but more specifically, we'll speak toward legalism. And I would say that our culture has taken a turn, the church, in my, my perspective at least, has taken a turn from not really fighting legalism as much as fighting lawlessness. And so some of the things you might have the tendency of hearing about the Pharisees, and you might in your mind think, oh, well, that's the Pharisees with their legalism. And then we'll, we'll, as we unwrap the text, we'll begin to realize that we are no greater at times than the Pharisees and their perspectives. And so there's a few things um, about legalism that, that we need to cover before we get into the text. And that is that uh, it is destructive, seductive, deceptive. And uh, in, in these three ways, let me explain how. It's destructive because it breeds death rather than life. That's what legalism does. It's seductive because it is a natural lure for the flesh that causes us to look at ourselves rather than Christ for our, for our spiritual status before God. And so legalism, will you'll begin to create this idea that if I do these things, God will be happy with me. And so we make up rules, like Eve saying that she can't even look at the tree. That wasn't a rule that God placed. She just added to it. She was fighting legalism in her own heart. And then it's deceptive because it makes us think that, that we are a spiritual elite when actually we are just spiritual slaves to this. So when I say legalism, let me give you a definition so that throughout this message you understand. Legalism is raising to the level of biblical mandate and command what God has neither commanded nor prohibited in his word. It is taking our traditions and preferences and imposing them on others as an act of spiritual superiority. Even though the Bible does not make such practices universally prescriptive. So let me also say this. This is, not, this is what I'm not saying today. I am not saying that if you have things that um, you feel uh, convicted over, that you should just throw them all away and consider them legalism. There are things that I'm convicted on and that may not specifically be said in Scripture that I hold to, but I don't need to press that on everyone else. Does that make sense? So I think it would be wrong for me to stand here in the pulpit and preach to you my convictions that are not found in God's Word, but God in His graciousness is molding me, and sometimes I have to lay down things that God's Word doesn't say that I necessarily have to lay down. Does that make sense? Maybe you can watch movies that I don't feel that I can watch. Maybe you can listen to music that maybe I don't feel that I can, or maybe vice versa, that I feel that I can maybe listen to something that you might. Uh, there are, of course, things in God's Word that speaks to purity in that, but I digress. So uh, today, 
we will discuss uh, the Sabbath and what it means to rest. And this is what I think we are not good at as a culture. We're not good at resting. We're not good at taking a day of the week to uh, meditate on God's word and to gather with his people. And uh, it becomes a difficulty in our lives for sure. And it's played out in society every day. So Mark chapter 2, we'll get into the text and we'll look a little further. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. If you would stand with me just for a moment, if you're able, and we will look to his word as our source of strength this morning. Mark chapter 2, verse 23, and I'm going to read into Mark chapter 3. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, this is Jesus, Have you, not, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God in the time of Eb- Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for those that are here this morning, that are here to gather with your people and to hear your word. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just have me say no more or less than what you would will, Lord. We thank you for your word. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are three chapters into the book of Mark, and already uh, there are what is considered the five controversies of Mark that are on display. The first controversy, which we've already covered, is the issue of forgiveness. The Pharisees stating, how, how can a man forgive other people's sins? I mean, this is just but a man. The next was eating with sinners, which, I mean, you could see as a, as a Pharisee, if you know anything about them, how they would be upset with this. The other is fasting and how Jesus was okay with not fasting for a moment while he was there. And then now we're going to, today we're going to cover the last two controversies, and that is one, the Sabbath, and then the Sabbath, the Sabbath which is the decision to kill Jesus. This is, this is the text in which the Pharisees feel that they have adequately charged with a, or given a, a case against Christ that they can persecute him and crucify him later. And so it was the issue of the, sa- the, the, of the Sabbath that the Pharisees and the um, Herodians decided to use against Christ. 
in this story, the disciples are walking with Jesus and they pluck heads of grain. So there's two things that are happening in the eyes of the Pharisees that are uh, forbidden. One is that they were traveling which in their minds was defined as walking more than 1,999 steps or paces. That was uh, forbidden on the Sabbath. And so if you had done that act, then you were against God's law and therefore uh, were in sin. Secondly, and predominantly in this text, what they were arguing is that they were reaping, which was forbidden in God's law, that you couldn't just go out and harvest your crops on the Sabbath, that you needed to take a break, that you didn't need to go out. The problem with these is that they're not commanded anywhere in God's law, that, that what they did on that day was not uh, breaking God's law. If at any point uh, you read something in God's word where you feel like Jesus has done something that, is, that God forbids, you just need to continue to discover the text to realize that you are wrong in that thought because Jesus came and lived a perfect life. And we believe that and we see that and there's evidence of it. And even Deuteronomy 23 and 25 confirms and says, and if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle into your, your neighbor's standing grain. And so even the text in the law says that if you walk by and if you need something to eat, you can pluck some grain if you need. You just can't go out and harvest things, which is exactly what they were doing. And the Pharisees didn't realize, and they never seemed to realize that challenging Jesus on God's word never works out. Namely, because John 1, 1 says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so challenging Jesus on the word is uh, contradictory. He is the word, right? I mean, you can't, you don't go to, the, to Webster's dictionary and say, I know more words, <laughs> You know, or I, I want to, and that's just even a, a low version of what was happening here in this moment. And so we have this, this idea of, of legalism that is forming, this idea of their hearts being hardened to what they perceive to be right, and in their, their perception of what they think is right, imposing it on others so that they can feel good about themselves and what they're doing, at least in the eyes of others. I have heard some say that wearing masks in church is a form of legalism. And, I, and I'll be honest, and, and so um, whether this is upsetting to you or not, it's all right. Um, but I can say that uh, I'm, I'm deeply not excited about wearing masks in church. I mean, that's the nicest way I can say it. Uh, I'm, I'm always the one that uh, is rolling my eyes when we bring it up in staff meetings or, or pushing back and thinking, I mean, I, there's nothing I hate more than just not seeing anyone's face right now and just seeing beady eyes just looking at me, wondering if you're sticking your tongue out or if you're smiling or whatever it is. A little squint, thank you, Tara. A little squint goes a long way for me, right? I, I feed off of that. But I, as, I, as I have thought about it and I have uh, had to pray, I, I, I have found myself disagreeing with myself in a sense because I see in Scripture that Jesus gladly honors the law when it conforms to God's intentions. However, when it doesn't form to God's intentions, you can always expect him to challenge the status quo. 
And so as I look at these masks and I think, man, I just don't know if, if uh, this is something that I want to get on board with. And then I think that this is a way that we can love our neighbor and this is a way that we can open ourselves to more lost people coming into this place because ultimately that's what I want. Then I'll do it. And then the other thought is, well, what would be next? What, what could the government impose next that we might conform to? I mean, that's a real thought. Is it a thought for you that, that if they just bring in another regulation, would Mosaic Church just do whatever they say? I mean, if they just said everyone just has to wear green, would we do it just so that we might worship together? I mean, how ridiculous might it get at some point that, that we would be in trouble? And so let me, uh, as, I'm, as I'm breaking this down, and, and I'm, not, I'm no way going to preach a social justice message or anything like that, but I think that as a pastor, it's our job to stay current with what you're seeing just so that we can show you that the Word of God is still relevant and it is still valuable in our days today. This is not the Word of God, but I can tell you that John Adams, as a founding father and our second president, he was, a, he was not a pastor nor a theologian, but he once wrote to the militia in Massachusetts on October 11th, 1798, and he says this, and I'm going to paraphrase a bit, but he said that if we ever become a nation that is obsessed with justice, while at the same time we are rioting and sinning, then we will become the most miserable nation on earth. And I think that is so true, that we have become so obsessed with uh, justice and with uh, 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 like this, uh, making sure that everyone's doing the right moral thing at all times. And then in our actions, we're showing something completely different. We've never in the history of humanity uh, have killed as many babies in this country as we do today. And at the same time, fight for life on another spectrum. It's very contradictory. And it's confusing and so we do not believe that masks are a violation of what God commands because it is the way that we can love those around us. But with that said, this is not a step toward weakness. Meaning that if any point the government commands us to violate what God has commanded or commands us to, to uh, or commands what God has violated, then we will rebel against it. Is that, did I say that wrong? I'm not certain. But uh, if at any point the government commands us to violate what God has commanded to be true, we will rebel against it, and I assure you of that, that we are not going to just lay down, uh, that the government is not our final authority. But God's word says that we should submit where we can. And so the, Phar the Pharisees confront Jesus on the issue of plucking grain because they have set up rules that they feel is so in important and such a legalistic thing, and they've created laws in their own mind Laws that are, have now become not helpful, as we would say, like, the masks might be or whatever, and, and that'll be my conclusion of my mask ran. I'm not, I'm not preaching a sermon on masks today. But they are uh, presenting now a conviction that they may have felt in themselves or whatever it might be, and they're placing it on others, and they're confronting Jesus over not respecting what they have added to God's law. And Jesus' response is what our response should be in every issue of our life. He takes them back to the word. He brings up David, who in 1 Samuel 21, eats what is considered holy bread that was designated for the priests. And there was an exception. Uh, there was an exception of the law because it met 
a need for God's people at a specific time. And so Jesus basically asks the Pharisees in this thing. When they confront him and talk to him about the grain, Jesus essentially asks them, have you read the Bible? Which is highly offensive because these were not only readers of the Scripture, these were uh, quote-unquote experts in the Scripture. And so Jesus continues, verse 27, and he says to them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What Jesus is not doing is he's not downplaying the Old Testament law. So if at any point someone wants to think uh, that we should um, get away from the Old Testament or that Jesus came to disrupt things and that he came to, to abolish the Old Testament, that was not his intention. And so uh, he's not downplaying the Old Testament, but rather uh, the tradition that they had been, that they had done just to add to the law. If you know much about us, we know, you know that uh, we are Reformed Baptists. We affirm the London Baptist Confession of Faith, that that is our confession. We find this to be helpful, but we also do not find it infallible. We find that there are a couple of things that we would maybe disagree with or, or push back on. You can go to our website, and there's two addendums that we have on our site that state uh, that we've typed out in saying how we view the the confession and some discrepancies that we might have. And our website, one of the discrepancies that we have is regarding the Sabbath. And our website says this, and I'm sure it was uh, written by Greg and typed by Ashley, but it says this, while we, uh, maybe the other way around, I don't know, uh, while we do believe that Sunday is to be observed as a day of worship known to us as the Lord's Day from Revelation 1, we do not believe people must abstain from all worldly labor or recreation on that day, only that which interferes with or distracts from corporate worship. So, if you go out and you, you hang out with your kids after, you go to the park and you fly a kite, whatever you might do, we consider that an okay thing. We're not against that. Um, if, you need to, if you need to go outside and, and get some mail that you had from yesterday, uh, we're not going to be upset with you, you know. If maybe you need to uh, just finish up a little bit of yard work, whatever, not, my, not what I want to do on a Sunday, but we're not going to put you in church discipline or whatever. Um, but if you... You know, if you're having uh, a job that you are purposefully working or you're taking an extra shift on a Sunday just because it's just something you need to make a little bit extra money or whatever, um, we might find issue with that. We understand taking care of your family. We also understand of seasons where you might have to do that. And we certainly understand. We understand that there is at times travel. We get that. There is sickness. That's why some of us are not here today, and we appreciate that, especially in these times. If you're sick, stay home. Uh, there is unique labor. For example, uh, the Scripture gives us that if your ox is stuck in a ditch, that's fine, <laughs> right? If, you're, if on the way here your ox got stuck, you can pull over and fix that. It's no problem. Uh, there, there's better ways of explaining that, but we could talk later. Uh, but it's a necessity, a labor that is necessity in that moment. Let's say this. Your water heater explodes <laughs> Sunday morning. It's fine. Like, take care of it. Or by virtue of vocation, such as doctors, nurses, military, fighter fighters, law enforcement, those that protect us and serve, we understand. Having a long week, you woke up feeling tired, it's raining, you couldn't find the right outfit. These are not reasons that you should be missing worship with God's people. And this is predominantly why a lot of people don't worship or don't show up for worship is for uh, what we would might consider 
petty reasons, and I am guilty of it just as any of you. I mean, uh, it was cold this morning, <laughs> right? When I got up, I didn't want to leave. Um, the fireplace, we turned the fireplace on this morning, and that felt good. But then I was like, well, I do have to preach, so I'll, I'll be here. No, no, um, of course, we, we want to worship with God's people. But what exactly does it mean when he says that the Sabbath was made for man? Well, the answer is that the Lord's day is meant to be a blessing and not a burden. That the Sabbath was not created so that you could just be like, oh, we, we have to go to church today because that's what we do on Sundays. Or we have to worship today because that's what God's word says. Instead, we have to view them as gifts that we get to worship with God's people, that we get to rest today. I hope that you plan to maybe go home or whatever it might be and relax. It's good if you're able to. And so this is what Jesus refers to as he's saying that this was made made to for us as God's gift to us. God, uh, some believe that the Sabbath was created uh, when the Ten Commandments came, the Fourth Commandment, to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But, I mean, Jesus, I think the Sabbath was created in creation, that God took the time to rest. So before the God's law, he rested. And I, if I can tell you, if there's anything that God doesn't need, it is rest. He doesn't. He doesn't need sleep. He doesn't need nourishment. He is fully sustained and relied upon on, on himself. He doesn't need any more than who he is. And yet he shows us mercifully that the God of all creation rested. So it's vital to our walk. It's vital to our witness even. It's vital to our health. God knows that this doesn't even meet spiritual needs, but physical needs. That's another beauty of the, the Sabbath. And then Jesus drops an absolute bombshell on the Pharisees. <laughs> I mean, it, this is, this is uh, if you can quickly skip this verse, not realizing what Jesus said. But in verse 28, he says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so with this assertion, Jesus once again declared his authority. He wanted the religious leaders to know that he was not only, that he not only had the authority to for, forgive sins, but that he was and is the Lord of the Sabbath. So what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? It means what he is saying specifically is that he made the Sabbath and is therefore sovereign over it. What he is saying to these Pharisees and, and what had, had to have absolutely just whipped their head over toward the, him was that he was claiming to be the creator. This was an outrageous assertion from the perspective of the Pharisees. This would have and did infuriate the religious leaders to the point where they had to come up of a way that they could kill this man because of that kind of claim. And yet Jesus does not he doesn't pull back from uh, announcing who he is. I don't know how at times I've heard people say that, uh, you know, Jesus never, never claims to be, 
the Messiah. It does, I, I don't know how we miss this in the text at times. I, I even heard a, a, a comic go on a, a, a late night show and was saying that, you know, the only place that Jesus says that he's divine is when he says he's the vine. And I was like, just to be funny, and I'm like, what? Like, it was the cheesiest thing. And it's, uh, it's certainly not true that throughout God's word, Jesus, and throughout the gospels, Jesus is placing in and asserting his authority over creation. I get a sense when I read the text, and it'd be awesome if we had, like, video of, of all that happened. I mean, that would be amazing. But I get a sense that when Jesus speaks, there's often a calmness to him. But in this case, I don't think that he was as calm as we might just read. Because we see that Jesus is angry, that Jesus is frustrated, that Jesus is, is grieved over these people, that Jesus deals most harshly with the church than he does sinners. In fact, always deals most harshly. He is always going in and, and going after the church and getting it straight. And I got to tell you, and this is not in my notes. I'm just going to tell you, I am wholeheartedly frustrated with the church. Especially in this last week and during this political season of, of almost them feeling like a savior has died. And it is frustrating to see. And I've gotten to the point where I wish that the church would become more concerned with the state of itself than the state of the union. Because what we're going to see is whatever, whatever you think, whether you're optimistic about what's to come in the, in the near future, whatever it might be, I don't care who is president or whatever it might be, we are in a cultural collision and things are getting crazy. And I see more and more Christians discouraged by what they see on the news as if their freedom is being taken from them while at the same time claiming that their ultimate freedom lies in Christ. What are we doing? Why are we getting so frustrated over what a news outlet says to us? Or who gets blocked on Twitter? Who cares who gets blocked on Twitter? This is not where our hope is found in. In Christians, we have to get our, hand, our heads out of the sand and look around and see that even in the, in the darkest times, the church will arise. That the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. That we are not called to just sit back and be tossed to and fro like the waves of the sea while the rest of the world does. I, I, am, I, I am guilty at myself. I'm not just preaching to you I'm, I, or at you. I'm preaching to all of us. And I wish that I could preach this to everyone. That we are, we are so much, the church is looking so much like the panic of the world that I can't see the difference between the two. And it's frustrating. And Jesus comes up and he's saying the reason why all of these things are in disarray is because the church looks so chaotic. I mean, this morning I'm, I'm getting, my phone's getting blown up by family members telling me how, like, I don't need to update my iPhone because they're going to take away my, I don't care what uh, Apple does and what the, anyone takes away from me. I am sorry that I'm getting heated, but if you read church history, like, folks, we got it really easy. Really easy. I haven't seen anyone get decapitated in the street for preaching the gospel yet here in America. And if the day comes, let's do it. 
And I'm being serious. If the day comes, let's do it. And if Mosaic, if all that's left is me, Greg, and Ashley, and Kelsey, then so be it. But I don't think that'll be the case. Because there will always be a remnant. God will always have a few. And what we're about to see is the church is about to get sifted. Because what will happen is we're going to have these church that have been packed with a lukewarm message of, of uh, just love and friendship and experiences and encounters. And what's going to happen is those things are going to be taken away and they'll gladly give them up and the word of God will be all that's left and we should say praise God. If the Christians are left with nothing but God's word in one another, that is all we need. And I can tell you that I don't care what the, the, the news says about the Democrats or the Republicans and their agendas. Ultimately, it is God's agenda. And if you see the world going a certain direction, God is not on the throne sweating one bead. He is not worried. He is not concerned. He is sitting back saying, I know my ways and they are good. What they mean for evil, I will mean for good. And the church will prevail, not because of us, praise God. The church will not prevail because of us. It will prevail because of Christ in us, what we just sang. And so he claims to be creator, and he is infuriated at the, re- that the religious teachers. I want us to go further and look at the next chapter here. And, and let me also pause for a second and say, I really wanted to preach three sermons on this text because I'm skipping a lot that is, is important, but um, this is just how we have to do things as we uh, do this expository preaching. But um, I'm trying to hit on the points that I feel are most relevant and uh, most edifying for you in this moment. So let's look again at the next chapter. and It says this, And again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there, with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus. I want us to pause for there a second, because when you watch something, when we watch something, we always have an intention. Whether, whether we realize it or not, whether we're uh, cognitive of that, uh, that actual thought, when we do look at something, we have an intention, uh, an intention as to why we're viewing it. Um, you know, if you watch American Idol, is this the second week in a row I've brought up American Idol? That's weird. But if we watch American Idol, uh, you might be looking at it for the perspective of wanting to hear a great voice, or you might be like me and looking for the perspective of wanting to hear the worst voice. So like when we, when we can have two people sitting in the same room watching something with different intentions, uh, I'm the guy that likes to see the most cringy thing that could ever happen. I watch cringe videos, compilations on YouTube. It is what I relax to. It's what I enjoy. I love it when uh, people go up to someone and ask a question that makes them feel extremely uncomfortable. I think it's hilarious. And uh, oftentimes that's how I view scripture. When Jesus looks at someone across the room and, and literally says to them what they're thinking, I just have to imagine that that guy is just like, you know, frozen in fear and, un- and feeling uncomfortable. And I would say certainly Jesus made people feel uncomfortable at times with his questions. People would ask Jesus a question, he would respond with a question that would somehow answer their question and then breed more of a question in their own mind. And I like that. But here the Pharisees are watching Jesus. And I can tell you their intentions are not pure. For us, I think it would be a joy to watch Jesus. I look forward to uh, tangibly, tangibly 
hugging Jesus one day. Isn't that amazing that we'll get to do that? That we will actually get to see Jesus and we'll realize that the paintings never got it right. <laughs> right? They never got it right. It never did it justice. Like a white guy with long hair, we're going to realize it's just not who it was, right? Like we're going to get there, and I think he's going to be about my height, I hope, because I don't want to, I don't want to be like Craig and like have to reach up there and give him a big hug. I mean, it might be nice. I could jump up in his arms. I don't know. But I like to think he's about five foot six, you know, and he's just walking around. Um, I don't know. That's just my thought. And so we would, we would look at Jesus when we're in heaven. We would watch him differently. But the Pharisees here watch him with ill motives. I want us to pause for a second. And if you have your, again, if you have your Bibles, hold where you're at and go to Genesis chapter 9. I was reading this text, and this has got to be one of the most random texts to ever preach on a message about the Sabbath. But this text I've been thinking about and have been it's just been stirring in me uh, the thought of what's actually happening here. Noah, in the scripture, had a pretty great moment, right? I mean, all odds were against him. Uh, he decided to, to build a boat and load up a bunch of animals, and that is awesome. And, it sa- and God uh, saved him, once again, a representation of the church prevailing. It's a, a beautiful example. But then a not-so-great moment here is found in, in Genesis chapter 9, and, and maybe you're familiar with this story, and maybe you're not. Maybe this is going to taint your perspective of Noah just, about, uh, just a bit here. But it says this in verse 20, Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. And, and before I read this, let me just say this. I'm in no way comparing Jesus to Noah here, okay? Because uh, Noah is going to be in sin, and we know that Jesus is without sin. But what I want us to see is the intentions of what legalism looks like and how it's observed by others. And so when the Pharisees are watching Jesus, they are not watching him so that they can become better. They are watching him so that they might accuse him. And so look here at verse 20, Genesis chapter 9. It says this, Noah began to be a man of the soil. So he was a farmer. And he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk. And lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, it's an interesting name for your kid, and Ham, the father of Canaan, said, uh, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And this scripture, this was always weird, because Noah is drunk, right? Just sinful, you shouldn't be drunk. And he's laying in his tent completely naked, right? Ham walks in and he sees the nakedness of his father. And his response is to go and further exploit his father's shame. And to me, as as I'm reading that, I'm thinking this is exactly what legalism does. It looks at the sin of someone else, and instead of finding ways to cover that up in the sense of mercy and grace, 
you would exploit it by showing it off and by showing that this is someone who has done worse or this is something that's funny or this is something that I find humor in. And so, of course, the difference here between Jesus and Noah is here is that Jesus is in, or Noah is, in fact, in sin. But instead of graciously confronting the sin, Ham further exposes him to his brothers. Legalism will always give you the desire to point out where others are doing something wrong. It will cause us to push, to further push someone down so that we can raise ourselves up. And so here in this picture in Genesis chapter 9, we have lawlessness and legalism. We have these two attitudes of Noah just doing something that he shouldn't have been doing and his son also doing something that he shouldn't have been doing. And then we see these brothers who are hand in hand, grab a blanket, put it over their shoulders and back up to their dad and throw it over him graciously. I just think in that moment when the Pharisees were watching Jesus, if they had watched him with the intentions of just see what he does. That's what I love about Nicodemus in in John 3 is that Nicodemus was the guy that was just like, "Uh, I don't know, but like, I just need to see. And so in the night he goes out and he inquires. And I love that about him. He's just interested in it. Kelsey and I were talking about that time, that period of time when you're, you're there and you're, you're following God's law to the best of your ability. And then Jesus shows up in the hesitancy that, that her and I admit we would have in our own hearts, which I think if you would think about it, you would too, because you fear the Lord. I mean, the scripture says to. And all of a sudden, someone comes in that, that is, is shaking things up and saying, follow me in the way that you would follow the Lord. And, and that would make me nervous which I think only affirms election because it would only be by the grace of God that someone like Matthew, a tax collector, could get up, leave his occupation, and follow him. And so Ham further exposed his father. The Pharisees, again, they have this opportunity to confront Jesus as they watch so that they might learn, but they don't. They only try to catch him in an act of sin for their own motives and self-righteousness. How wicked is it of us that at times, whether it's on the outside but maybe on the inside, that we might smile a little bit if a marriage fails or a pastor falls or a coworker gets caught doing something that they shouldn't. That's wickedness. The skeptic will read God's word and trying to find fault in it, and the Christian should read it and find hope. When we read God's word, it should bring us hope in life. When we gather together on the Sabbath, that is the intention that we come together not to see who is dressed best or who is the happiest or whose kids are the best behaved or, or whatever it might be. We don't come into this place to play the game of comparison. We don't come into this place that we can judge one another or we just know like, oh man, well, that person's really dealing with some stuff, I guess. We don't deal with that. We come in like brothers with a blanket on our back, walking back to our our father or whatever it might be in this illustration uh, and, and graciously covering them and saying, I am with you. 
And I see your sin, but I will not further expose it. Instead, I want to be with you and cover you. That is the Sabbath. We gather together. I, I, I really, we need to shift. Um, and I'm not saying Mosaic in general. I'm saying the church at large, which Mosaic too. We need to, to shift from the, the set of, of Sunday mornings being an event but rather a moment, a moment that God gives us that his people gather. When I pray with my kids on Saturday nights, I always pray, Lord, we thank you that tomorrow we get to gather with your people. Because I want them, and, and they're not getting it. I mean, Ezekiel always will ask me, can we skip church today? I did the same thing, right? You remember being a kid and it being Sunday morning and just being like, oh, come on, <laughs> you know, again? <laughs> But we need to teach our children that this is a gift. When you get in the car and you're sighing and you're, you're just like, I, can't, I just don't want to, I, I don't want to serve in kids' church today. No, you get to do these things. We get to welcome people into this door. You get to have a seat. We get to worship. The praise team gets to work. They get to lead us. This is a beautiful thing. And church can so quickly become more of an obligation than it is a gift. The Sabbath can so quickly become a burden. Let's get back to our text here in Mark. Again, he entered the synagogue. This is chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. How wicked. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it, he said to them, the, the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? This is another one of those cringy questions, I think. To save life or to kill but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, and he grieved at their hardness of hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they could destroy him. Now, a withered hand is not a life-threatening malady. It's, it, this is a withered hand you could live with the rest of your life. It'd be inconvenient for sure, but it's not something that's going to take this man's life. And so according to the rabbis here, Jesus should have said, or I guess he could have said, but they certainly thought he should have said that if you want me to fix your hand, I'll have to wait until tomorrow to do it. But Jesus saw, listen to this, Jesus sees no need to wait to show compassion. And he says again, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And I believe that Jesus was speaking with irony because he knew what was going on in the hearts of the Pharisees. He knew that they thought that they were just waiting for him to do something of this nature. This, again, just uh, confirms the idea that, well, why doesn't you know, God just do something miraculous today? 
That way everyone would know it and they would just be saved. Jesus restores a man's hand in front of these Pharisees and they immediately leave and find a way to kill him. R.C. Sproul once said, Could there have been a worse way of violating the sanctity of the day God set apart for the well-being of his people than to plot to kill the Lord of the Sabbath on the Sabbath? Could there have been a worse way of violating the Sabbath than to strategize killing the creator of the Sabbath? I don't think so. Jesus looks at them with anger. And I like that it also says he looks at them with grief. That he was outraged and grieved that these spiritual leaders cared more about their traditions than the welfare and suffering of human beings. The Pharisees hated everything about Jesus, but the main reason for their hatred was because he exposed their wickedness. When I am in sin, when I'm dealing with sin, the last thing that I want to do is listen to worship music. The last thing I want to do is read God's word. The last thing that I want to do is show up with God's people. When I'm in sin, let's be honest with you. I mean, it's just, it's not something that I'm uh, excited about. And so if, if I begin to detest the things of God, I have to really begin to examine and say, God, I have to fight through that sin in my life. And I have to say, God, why am I feeling this way toward you? Have you been there before? Where like you you just adamantly like, I don't want to hear a worship song right now. When I find myself being comforted by worldly things more than God's word, I know that I'm in sin. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to quicken our consciences, to make us aware of our rebellion against God. I would say that all of us have some degree of callousness in our heart or stiffness of neck that we, we know that nothing exposes our hearts like God's word. And so I, I'm thankful when people show up for service, I'm thankful because whatever state that they're in spiritually, I'm glad that they're here to hear God's word. I know someone personally, and, and this person's never been here. You don't know them. They, they were... a had come to the ministry that I was a part of before this. And one thing that he said to me is, I, I, and I've, I really want him to come to Mosaic. I really do. And if he ever shows up, I'll never tell you, tell you that this is who he is. But one reason why he will not come to Mosaic, he said, there's only one reason why I will not come. And I said, what is it? And he said, because at the end of every service, you fence the table, and I know that I am not worthy because of my sin to come and receive the elements. And he said, I cannot handle that type of rejection. Which, of course, I'm like, well, brother, like, submit to God's word. Like, fight your sin. Follow Jesus. I'm, I'm saying these things, and he just says, I can't do it. I, can't, I cannot show up to a service that would fence this table from me. But he's so convicted by the fencing of the table that he is fearful to be here. It is so easy to build a big church. Do you know how to do it? Don't preach sin. Just don't. Tell everyone that they're awesome. 
Tell everyone that today is Friday, even though it's Sunday, because every day is Friday. Tell them that, that everything is going to be perfect, that, every, you know, that if you would just give today, then you'll have the most prosperous life, and that God's people really don't have issues. If you tell people that, if you lie to them enough, you will begin to build and build and build. But I can tell you, that church is about to fall, because it's not a church. A true church preaches sin and the, and the Savior that has come to save his people from it. That is the true church. If you want to build a big church, don't preach sin. Don't confront one another. When you see someone laying naked and drunk on the floor, laugh and tell others about it so that they can feel better about themselves. We have to become grieved over the sin of those around us. We have to step aside and stop, stop looking at all these categories that society creates and look at those that are not saved as lost and in need of a Savior. The gospel exposes our wickedness. It shows us that we are more like the Pharisees than we are Jesus at times. However, our response should be to watch Jesus closely not with accusation, but with the intentions to follow and cling to him. What Christ brings is this, the, the stability of being able to say, I am broken and I need God's people and I need God's word and I need to seek him in spirit and in truth and I need to cry out to him. And you know what Jesus does? He walks to us with the blanket of his righteousness and he covers us despite our drunkenness and our nakedness. He covers us in his righteousness. The Sabbath, Sunday mornings, is not an event. It is a holy moment where God's people gather to say, I am broken and needy. I am naked and shamed. But there is one who brings the fulfillment of all of those things. That he is there to mend what is broken. That he is there to cover what is shamed. And he is there to clothe what is naked. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.